Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Nature in an experiment. Why is life so far? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data's... I find this... Not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding. Nature. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, mysterious zombie fires in frozen forests. And the latest stories from the Nature Briefing. I'm Sharmini Bandel. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. First up on the show this week, reporter Jeff Marsh has been finding out about a very unusual type of forest fire that can seemingly rise from the dead. If you look down at the earth from the North Pole, you'll see a ring of conifer forests circling the Arctic, wherever there's land. This vast boreal forest crosses Alaska, Canada and Siberia, and it's one of the last intact forests on the planet. But every summer, swathes of it are destroyed by fire, releasing large amounts of CO2 into the atmosphere, and as the climate warms, the fire seasons are getting worse. Understanding how these fires start and spread is vital in the fight against climate change, and this week in Nature, our paper reports a spooky and somewhat alarming source of ignition, known as a zombie fire. Here's Sander Frafebeker at Vrije Universiteit Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Fires in most of the world these days, uh, most of the fires are started by humans. But it's different in the boreal. In the south of the boreal, okay, there's still humans present there and their human ignition uh, remains important. But as soon as you go further to the north, there's less human presence and then the the natural ignition becomes the most important and that is uh, lightning. Uh, so in, in, in the forest of uh, Alaska in, in northwest Canada, uh, about 90% of the burned area actually starts with a, a lightning strike. And then as we found in, in this paper, uh, there is another kind of source of uh, ignitions as well, which is a very intriguing one. Yeah, this is these so-called zombie fires. I couldn't quite believe what I was reading. These are, these are fires that stay alive, smoldering under the snow all winter and then pop up again. Yeah, so I was looking into these areas after some big fire seasons in 2014, 2015, and we kind of linked those with extreme lightning occurrence. But then after that, I was also looking at these satellite images from uh, the year after these big fire years. And I was really intrigued because I saw like new fires kind of starting at the edge of the fire scar from the year before. And 
I was like, this this cannot be true almost. Like, is it really possible that a fire would just kind of sit and smolder there under under the snow in the winter in these areas? It, it gets uh, down to minus 40 degrees Celsius. Would it be possible that that is flaring up again? If fires really were overwintering, or indeed happening on a large scale, it could have implications for fire management and climate change. So Sander set his then new PhD student, Rebecca Scholster, to verify his hunch. So the very first thing he told me was about these fires, and I was a bit doubtful, to be honest. <laughs> I didn't really believe that this was actually happening. But yeah, then I got into the research, and we also talked to a lot of fire managers about it, and they all said, yes, this is really happening. And yeah, that was really exciting, I guess. So people on the ground in this North Boreal forest area already kind of had a, a knowledge of these zombie fires, did they? Yes, exactly. Because we were lucky enough to get reports from fire managers and they told us of about 50 fires in Alaska and the Northwest Territories where they had seen these behavior. And this is how we started off. So this is really our was our reference data from the ground. And from then we looked at it at the satellite data. Just describe what that data set looks like and what you can tell about, you know, what's happening on the ground from up in a satellite. Yeah. So basically what we're looking at are photographs. Of course, on these photographs, we can't really see if there is a fire smoldering in the earth or in the soils. But we know that when they're smoldering under the snow, they don't have a lot of oxygen, so they cannot spread very fast. So we will always expect these fires very close to a fire scar of the previous year. We also know that these fires reflame again quite early in the fire season. So even before the usual fire season starts. We also use ground-based lightning data to check if there hasn't been a lightning strike around the area. And we also use infrastructure and settlement data to check whether any humans were around. Because, of course, also humans can set the forest on fire quite early in the season. In your opinion, then, are these overwintering fires just like very interesting but very rare anomalies? Or are they common enough to cause a serious problem? I think right now, based on our research in North America, we have to say... They're pretty rare and they only make up about 1% of the total burnt area, so they don't contribute a lot. But we did find that there is relation to climate change. So these fires appear much more often after hot summers and large fire years, and we do see that more often. So if we know these fires can overwinter and could potentially do so more often in a changing climate, then can we use what we know about them to predict future fires and maybe do something about it? I went back to Sander. There is definitely useful information in both where they can, where they have a high likelihood of occurring both in space and time. So that information, of, of course, tells us that we could monitor these locations, uh, both with satellites, but potentially also with, with planes. And you could potentially also um, like uh, try to send someone there to ex extinguish that fire when it's still really small, so it never becomes a big flaming forest fire again. And just give us a sense of the importance of this ecosystem for greenhouse gases. How much carbon is locked up in above the ground and I suppose below the ground? In the top three meters of these uh, soils in the, in the boreal, um, there's about twice as much carbon stored as currently in the atmosphere. Fires will, of course, not release all of that, but they can release part of that. And not only by the direct emissions by the fire, 
but also um, after a fire you kind of remove that insulating organic layer and because of that the, the permafrost deeper down may also start thawing and if that happens that could release additional greenhouse gases into the atmosphere so um, if, if we can think about ways to uh, better manage fires in these high northern regions that would definitely be an important asset. That was Zander Varavrabika and Rebecca Shilton from Freya University Amsterdam in the Netherlands. You can find a link to their paper in the show notes. Coming up in the show, we'll be hearing about Voyager 1's latest findings from outside the solar system. That's in the briefing chat. But first, Dan Fox is here with this week's research highlights. Scientist, scientist, how does your research grow? Well, mostly with blue flowers and taller stems, according to a new analysis of the types of plants most likely to feature in scientific studies. A team of researchers looked at 280 studies published between 1975 and 2020 that focused on plant species typical of the southwestern Alps. They found that eye-catching plants, rather than rare or endangered ones, tended to attract scientists' attention. Plants with blue flowers were the most studied, and plants with white, red or pink blossoms were investigated more often than those with brown or green flowers. Scientists also tended to examine plants with taller stems, probably because their flowering parts are more easily accessible than are those of plants with shorter stems. The authors suggest this aesthetic bias could sway conservation efforts in favour of attractive plants, resulting in a lack of interest in less charming, yet often more endangered species. Get to the root of that research in Nature Plants. Your mouth is full of microscopic organisms, and so were the mouths of other members of the human family tree. Now a team of researchers have harvested some of these microbes to better understand how our oral microbiome evolved. The team found the same 10 types of bacterium in samples scraped from the teeth of modern humans, Neanderthals, monkeys and apes, pointing to the animal's common origin. But Neanderthals and modern humans harboured bacteria that the others did not, including a group of streptococcus bacteria which often help to digest starches. And the genes that enable these streptococcus bacteria to convert starches into energy-rich sugars were more abundant in modern humans than in Neanderthals, hinting that reliance on starches grew during the course of human evolution. Chew over that research in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences of the United States of America. It's time now for the briefing chat, where we discuss a couple of stories highlighted in the nature briefing. So, Ben, what have you got this week? Yeah, well, for my story this week, Shamani, I've got something that was reported in Reuters, and it's based on a nature astronomy paper. And it's all about the latest findings from the Voyager 1 probe, which is currently over 14 billion miles or over 22 billion kilometres away from the Earth as we speak right now. And so Voyager 1 is outside the solar system. Um, I'm trying to get a picture in my head of, you know, where is the edge of the solar system? So Voyager 1 was launched in 1977 and its job was to kind of study the outer planets, you know, Jupiter, Saturn and what have you. Uh, And it just sort of kept going. And nine years ago, Sharmini, it actually exited the solar system, a place called 
the heliopause. And it's obviously kept going since then and, you know, travelled a bunch more miles. And it's been collecting data as it's gone. And it's discovered, well, a hum. The thing is about leaving the solar system is... What's it studying now? Like, there sh- shouldn't really be much there. What is humming exactly? Well, that's a great question. And of course, space is called space because there's nothing there, right? <laughs> well, actually, it turns out that's not the case at all, Sharman. There's all the space scientists are screaming. And so what it's actually been collecting is kind of the background noise in interstellar space. And it's coming from, you know, ripples or vibrations within this kind of ionized gas called plasma. And, and when you say background noise, if I was there, could I hear it? <laughs> That's a stupid I think it's a legit question, Sharmini. The answer is no, which is why I'm not playing it to you now, or am I? <laughs> and, you know, what exactly is causing it is currently unknown, but it is this kind of constant noise. And it seems like there is some sort of previously unknown activity in this gas, in this interstellar plasma that exists between stars. So if, if space is actually yeah, filled with, with plasma, how much do we know about it? And what does the humming tell us? It's pretty diffuse, Shyamani. The researchers behind this work say that there are about 0.1 atoms for every cubic centimetre in plasma. And you can compare that to the air we breathe on Earth that has billions of atoms for every cubic centimetre. So not a lot there. Exactly what's causing it, though, again, isn't entirely known just yet. But the fact that it can be measured means that researchers can see the density of plasma that Voyager 1 is sort of swimming through as it goes along. And previously what's happened is when it left the solar system, it was able to detect these kind of bursts of activity in the the plasma and that was kind of caused by the sun being overactive and firing out a load of stuff and the researchers say that was a bit like detecting a thunderstorm but what this is like is detecting some gentle rain in between which is quite lovely and say good on voyager and off off it goes continuing its amazing journey well i just love the idea that that these sort of scientists of voyager are just sort of listening to space humming that's lovely Much nicer than my story this week, which is a little bit more on the gruesome side. So I have been reading an article in The Guardian about a treasure trove of Neanderthal bones in a cave in Italy. Well, a couple of podcasts ago, Shalini, we had that story about evidence of deliberate kind of ceremonial human burial. Uh, Is this kind of similar to that? Do we know what happened to these Neanderthals? Well, that's, I guess, the big mystery. And actually, this particular cave is interesting because this isn't the first time that Neanderthal bones have been found there. Um, So I think the first time was in 1939. And they discovered a Neanderthal skull there. And based on the damage to the skull and it had a hole in it, there was a theory at that time that like, hey, this could tell us about Neanderthal burial practices or how Neanderthals treated their dead. And there was a theory that it was evidence of ritualistic cannibalism. Now, that hasn't remained a terribly popular theory in the decades since. And that cave complex hasn't been investigated now since the 50s. But in the last couple of years, they've been looking again, and they've been looking in particular at an area that sort of really wasn't previously accessible, and which they think a cave-in has managed to protect and preserve the bones that are there. So a fortuitous event that led to these bones being uncovered then, and you've said bones 
laurel there. So I imagine that there's a few that have been found. Yeah, loads. So, I mean, I think this is the thing that is sort of most excited researchers in the field. They have found remains belonging to seven adult males, one female and a younger boy. And this isn't all one group of Neanderthals hanging out together. They're from different time frames. Some of them as old as maybe 100,000 years old, some more recent. And the key evidence that has been obvious straight off from these bones is that a lot of them have been gnawed on by hyenas. And it's not just Neanderthal bones. There are other animal bones there as well. And they think that maybe this cave could at some point have been a sort of hyena larder. Right, well, well, quite macabre, Sean. My goodness. So, I mean, is it the hyenas that did for these Neanderthals, do we think? It's not 100% clear whether the hyenas maybe hunted them or whether the hyenas scavenged a dead body and then sort of dragged it back. And it's also, you know, not necessarily the case that all the bones are from hyena kills. It could be that at some time Neanderthals themselves lived there. But what we do know is that this cave, which is now a really significant site, having given up so many bones, was in a place where the Neanderthals were really doing well and thriving and lived for tens of thousands of years. And so what's next then, Germany? Well, I think this is just the beginning. Having all these bones is brilliant for the archaeologists. And there's a lot that bones can tell you. So we heard from Dan earlier about a study looking at what genomes from the teeth can tell us about Neanderthals' diets. And similarly here, they've sort of done a very preliminary analysis of the sort of tartar to, to, to show what they were eating. But the plan is to sort of dig a lot deeper, looking for DNA, for evidence of illnesses, pathologies, what their bones tell us about their activity levels. And they're still looking in this cave. I think they're hoping to find, you know, maybe evidence of tools, things that could tell us more about Neanderthal culture. But everyone is basically excited to have this sort of extraordinary find of so much material and a site that is so well preserved and could yet yield more secrets. Well, extraordinary is right, Shamley. What a find. And thank you for bringing it to the briefing chat this week. Listeners, if you'd like to know more about these stories and more like them, but have that information delivered directly to your inbox, then you should sign up for The Nature Briefing and check out the show notes where you can find a link to do so. Before we go, we've got a new video for you out on our YouTube channel. It's about an unexpected eruption on Hawaii three years ago and the volcanologists who've been trying to piece together what happened. There'll be a link to that in the show notes. But for now, that is all for the Nature Podcast. Don't forget, as always, you can follow us on Twitter. We're at Nature Podcast. And you can reach out to us on email. We're podcast at nature.com. I'm Benjamin Thompson. And I'm Sharmini Bundell. Thanks for listening. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.